and welcome to the A-Level Politics Show. I am joined today by the one and only Matthew Phillips. Matthew, are you there? I am here, live from SM2. And how are you self-quarantining? How are you finding it? Uh, difficult at first, but um, building in a routine to get, get me through the days. I understand that you are going to go up against PE with Joe. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your new initiative that you've got uh, in the pipeline? Um, it's very much in its infancy. Yeah. Um, it has a loose uh, title of uh, Politics with Matt. Politics with Matt on YouTube. Um, playing with the name. Right. I don't think you should play any more with the name. I think it's great. You got PE with Joe, you do your yeah. workout, and then you do yeah. your politics with Matt. I think that's fantastic. Um, wonderful. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing that um, unfold um, as uh, the lockdown continues. Um, today, we will be focusing on... We're hoping for getting viewers as, as, just as much as Joe Wicks. Well, I mean, he got nearly a million. I think you can get at least double that. You've got a high profile for a start. Clearly, clearly. Anyway, today we will be focusing on the UK judiciary, the UK Supreme Court, and we will be trying to answer this question, evaluate the view that the Supreme Court has become too powerful. And I am going to be arguing uh, that it has become too powerful, and Matthew will be arguing that it hasn't. Um, And then the listeners um, at home can decide what they think. Is that okay, Matthew, with you? That is okay with me. Okay, I'm going to start then with the issue of judicial review. And I'm going to argue that that gives judges far too much power to influence public policy to get involved with uh, the decisions of elected officials. So judges can use the power of judicial review, uh, whereby actions of government and other bodies can be declared ultra virus. That means acting beyond the powers given to it in law. So in January 2017, the Supreme Court ruled that Parliament and not the Prime Minister uh, alone, that Parliament must vote on whether the government could start the Brexit process, the so-called Article 50 process. The judgment meant that Theresa May could not begin talks with the EU on Britain's withdrawal from the EU until MPs and peers gave their backing. Now, a cabinet minister, Sajid Javid, argued that that court decision on Brexit represented a clear attempt to frustrate the will of the British people that had voted um, to leave the EU, highlighting that as the Supreme Court status has grown, collisions with the government will become more frequent and you pit unelected judges against elected governments. Um, Let's give a few more examples. In October 2013, OK, this is not a Supreme Court decision, but I don't care. Uh, the Court of Appeal ruled that then Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt did not have the power to implement cuts at Lewisham Hospital in South East London. Arguably, limiting government actions there curtails the room for manoeuvre and prevents the government from taking decisive action on this particular issue uh, on health cuts. Um, The use of judicial review, declaring that ministers have acted beyond their power, has indeed increased uh, more than threefold uh, in recent years, from about 4,000 in 2000 to around about 15,600 in 2013. So there you go, Matthew. That's my first argument. Judicial review makes the courts, makes the Supreme Court too powerful. Boom. 
Is this where I come in now? Yeah, go on. Um, so it's argued that a judicial review has um, grown in frequency, which it has. Um, and largely that's because the uh, Supreme Court now exists. Um, it's not based in Parliament anymore. Um, and therefore it has more of a um, more independence to uh, check the power of the government. You're proving all my arguments here, Matthew. Thank you very much. Uh, my next word was going to be, however. Um, oh, that, now, that magical word. That magical word. Um, so what you need to bear in mind is that um, when it comes to judicial review, um, they are ultimately looking at whether um, the the government or some sort of public body is acting unlawfully. So what right. that means is that they are ultimately looking at the laws passed by Parliament yeah. and uh, deciding whether they are acting within those rules. Yeah. And, and ultimately, those rules can be changed. Yeah. Because Parliament is sovereign. Yeah. So to, to give an example... Um, ultimately, um, the first thing to, to bear in mind is that there was um, a case um, back in 2010, I think it was, um, and it was all to do with the freezing of uh, assets of suspected terrorists. Mm -hmm. And um, the Supreme Court ruled that that was acting beyond um, the powers that the uh, that Parliament had given the government, um, that it went and um, basically went against the uh, Human Rights Act. Yeah. However, what then later happened was that um, the um, government put a bill through uh, Parliament called the Terrorist Asset Freezing Act of 2010, which... Um, said that they the the UK the UK was required by the UN to freeze the assets of persons who committed terrorist attacks or terrorist acts um therefore changing the law and making what the government wanted to do um legal again and so in a sense um all the courts are simply doing is ensuring the government doesn't become too powerful vis-a-vis -vis parliament um, in a way, the courts are on Parliament's side against the government. Is that kind of what we're we're saying here? Absolutely, and I think really there are very few um, instances where um, the government and um, the Supreme Court do disagree. Um, where they do, the government is very happy to 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 listen to what the Supreme Court says. Um, and if we're thinking about the the instances where Parliament and the Supreme Court disagree, um, they're even rarer. Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose that's why we hear about them, isn't it, in a way? Um, you know, we heard about Prince Charles's black spider memos that revealed Prince Charles's secret lobbying of Tony Blair's government on environmental issues. And the Supreme Court ruled uh, that the government was compelled to release those memos that Prince Charles had sent um, uh, in a freedom of information uh, request. Um, and ultimately, um, that 
represented a fundamental challenge uh, to the use of the ministerial veto to block the release of important information which may well be in the public interest. And actually, we want, as citizens, we want that to be in the public domain. We want to know what our future monarch is is, is saying to the government, I guess. Um, and so, in, in a way, the courts are simply not just standing up for Parliament, but also standing up for us when it comes to using judicial review and comparing what the government is doing with what the law uh, says. And I think the the example that you gave about the uh, the Miller one case um, is a good example of that, where the Supreme Court is acting as like a, an umpire between government and parliament and um, very often has um, ruled on the side of parliament and parliamentary sovereignty um, and that parliament should be consulted before making or unmaking a treaty like those with the European Union. Uh huh. So there we have it. That's our first debate on judicial review. Um, I was hoping perhaps now to, to move on to that, maybe that second chunky paragraph on judicial independence and autonomy. Um, we're just going to have a quick break uh, where we're going to hear uh, from all our uh, major sponsors, Nike, Coca-Cola, um, uh, I don't know, uh, FIFA on the PlayStation, all of that stuff. If you don't hear those adverts, it's probably because we haven't quite secured them yet, but um, we're hoping to. Um, so uh, we'll be back after the break. So, Matthew, we've spoken about judicial review. Uh, we're now going to speak about judicial independence. And I'm going to argue that the creation of the Supreme Court has made conflict more likely and strengthens the independence and the autonomy uh, of that court, making it too powerful. Um, it was created in 2009, this Supreme Court, together with other reforms, and that marked the end of a long process towards establishing the separation of powers uh, between the judiciary um, and parliament. Um, we also get uh, the introduction of a judicial appointments commission, um, which is independent of politicians, and that limited the role of Lord the, of the Lord Chancellor in appointed, appointing judges. Um, now, this means this greater independence. What does that mean for judicial power? It means that they're likely to be more active in going after those politicians uh, that they once used to sit next to in the House of Lords. Uh, and we see that uh, when the court uh, prevented Boris Johnson from proroguing or suspending Parliament for political reasons in September 2019, the so-called Miller II case. And that demonstrated that the court is willing to stand up to executive dominance and therefore get involved in politics, which is demonstrative of a court that perhaps is too powerful. How do you like them apples, Matthew? Um, yeah, well, it's certainly true that there's been a lot of um, reforms to try and make the Supreme Court more independent and neutral. Um, as you say, the Supreme Court especially has been involved in politics a lot more um, in recent times, and certainly much more than, say, um, the law lords were when they were part of Parliament. Um, it's certainly been something that's been in the news a lot recently that the Supreme Court have had to um, be in um, the news much more defending their actions. So just 
um, last month now, um, L- Lord Reed, who is now the um, president of the Supreme Court, had to um, be out in the in the media explaining that judges aren't staging a power grab. They're not trying to take over Parliament's role and um, they're not making up law as they go along. Um, and all of this is really off of the back of um, the Supreme Court being involved in two Brexit-related landmark defeats of of what the government wanted to do um, about Article 50 and the government wanting to trigger Article 50 without consulting Parliament and the Prime Minister's attempt to prorogue Parliament as well. And all of this has led to uh, politicians um, trying to review the role of the Supreme Court, ultimately, um, the current um, member of cabinet who oversees the um, Supreme Court, the Justice Secretary, um, Suella Braverman, wrote an article on the Conservative Home website urging the government to take back control from an interfering judiciary. So it could well be that we see in the next few months and weeks that um, the government tried to weaken the Supreme Court. Certainly, they are reviewing the Human Rights Act. They see it as a way of the judiciary is trying to weaken the government still further. So their their, their power is certainly under review. Mm. And I guess uh, whenever the Supreme Court makes a, a difficult decision or a controversial decision, the, the pushback against it in the media, the, the criticism from politicians, that has uh, increased. And I think we saw that, didn't we, with the English riots of 2011, which saw the government put real pressure uh, for courts, uh, for the judiciary, for the Supreme Court, uh, to not interfere with their push for harsh sentences of, of, of rioters. Um, and... I guess also that comes back to parliamentary sovereignty as well, doesn't it? Do you want to say a little bit more about that and how parliamentary sovereignty, especially if it's dominated, Parliament is dominated by the executive, by the government, uh, with the strong majorities we have now, how that undermines the power of the Supreme Court? Well, the Supreme Court can only um, rule acts that the government have pushed through Parliament as incompatible with um the law um, and the Human Rights Act specifically. Um, And so really they are upholding the laws made by Parliament. Mm -hmm. Um, And we we very often see, I mean, exactly with the the two Brexit-related Supreme Court cases, what they were doing there was upholding parliamentary sovereignty. So we very often see the Supreme Court acting as the referee and ruling on the side of Parliament over the power of 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 government and, and that's not the case is it in in the us the supreme court there can actually strike down what par- what what congress does their their version of of parliament um because they are interpreting um not what congress does so much as they're interpreting the constitution and weighing that up against what congress is doing so they they can say actually hey elected politicians you can't do that because the constitution says you can't whereas in this country when you get elected politicians passing laws through Parliament, the Supreme Court can't say, oh, you can't do that because we don't have a codified document that, that tells them they can't do that, I guess. Um, I mean, it's, certainly that, there's been lots of very controversial Supreme Court cases about that in America. So uh, looking at Shelby versus Holder, where 
um, the Supreme Court struck down parts of the Voting Rights Act. In the United States. In the United States. Um, and that has allowed um, sweeping changes of how elections are conducted across the 50 states. Um, and that, is, that, that just that shows the power of the Supreme Court to rule acts of Congress or parts of acts of Congress unconstitutional. And that is obviously not something we have in this country, but we do have um, the Human Rights Act, don't we? So let's, after the break, look a little bit more um, into that particular law and what that gave the Supreme Court. And I'm going to be arguing um, that the Human Rights Act gave the Supreme Court particularly a huge amount of power. So stand by. Hello, Matthew. Matthew, are you there? Ah, it seems we have lost Matthew, I'm afraid. So I will continue this final section uh, by myself. I uh, am arguing um, that the Human Rights Act has given the Supreme Court a huge amount of power. Now, the Human Rights Act makes it unlawful for any public body to act in a way that is incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights, unless the wording of an Act of Parliament means that they have no other choice. So it allows UK judges to hear cases from UK citizens who feel their rights under the European Convention on Human Rights have been undermined. And it became easier for UK citizens to use domestic courts, including the UK Supreme Court, to exercise their rights under the ECHR, which has led to far more instances of judges ruling against the government. The Gillian and Quinton 2010 case at the European Court of Human Rights found police use of terror laws to stop and search without grounds for suspicion to be unlawful. This resulted in new guidelines needed on police powers to stop and search. And therefore, conservatives would argue that the courts, um, be they European or the UK Supreme Court, um, were stepping into areas of public policy and hindering crime fighting. The Human Rights Act also gave the Supreme Court the power to issue incompatibility statements, which are issued when Parliament passes a law that the court says is in breach of the Human Rights Act. Now, the Belmarsh case of 2004 ended with the then law lords issuing an incompatibility statement stating that control orders or house arrest for foreign terrorist suspects, as allowed by a 2001 law, was discriminatory under the European Convention on Human Rights, the ECHR, as the same treatment was not applied for British terror suspects. Now, arguably here, the courts interfered with the government's ability to keep citizens safe, to keep terrorists off the streets. The Khan 2010 case uh, made it more difficult to deport immigrants, even if they had committed offences. The Human Rights Act prevents people from being sent back to places where they would be subjected to torture or inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. And really, as the last court of appeal in the UK, uh, the Supreme Court um, has effectively made it more difficult to deport such people uh, like um, people who have committed uh, criminal offences. So. There is the argument, and I think it's the Conservative argument, really, that the Human Rights Act has given judges and the Supreme Court particularly too much power. However, now this is something I think Matthew would have argued had uh, we 
remained on the call, um, judges have not always been able to stop politicians eroding the rights of people. And that indicates actually the limits to their power. Incompatibility statements, as I mentioned, are not binding on Parliament. Strictly speaking, parliamentary sovereignty is preserved by the Human Rights Act because the courts cannot automatically strike down legislation they see as conflicting with the Human Rights Act. Um, unlike in the US, where um, the Supreme Court can strike down laws passed by Congress. So the courts are merely announcing a declaration of incompatibility between um, the Human Rights Act and the law that has been passed. Um, the government can then, through Parliament, announce a derogation, that's an opt-out, from the Human Rights Act, as the last Labour government did when passing the Prevention of Terrorism Acts in 2005. And following the Belmarsh case that I mentioned, the government simply amended the law to allow the continued monitoring of foreign terror suspects in the way they had been doing up to that point. So politicians also can simply ignore court rulings on human rights. In, in February 2015, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that the rights of UK prisoners were breached when they were prevented from voting in elections. Now, the court called for a change in the law, but this has not happened. Both the previous Labour government and current coalition have failed to legislate. Um, although I said current coalition, this is obviously we're not in a coalition anymore. Um, it's not just the coalition, it was the subsequent minority Tory government and then the majority Tory government led by Boris Johnson that have also failed to legislate and therefore ignored this court ruling for many years. Um, although various proposals have been debated in an attempt to end the long-running row with the Strasbourg court, prisoners still do not have uh, the right to vote, um, even though I think Wales now is looking at bringing in prisoners' rights um, there. So basically, a powerful executive with a majority in Parliament is the ultimate decision maker for the range and scope of rights and civil liberties that are set out for the general public. And perhaps this is why uh, we see during the COVID-19 outbreak that it's the government calling the shots and no court is standing in their way when they tell citizens to stay at home. This is why courts have been powerless to stop a raft of anti-human rights measures. The Justice and Security Act 2013 allowed so-called closed material proceedings or secret courts um, to be permitted into the justice system for suspected terror suspects. If a citizen takes the British government or its officials to court in cases of torture, rendition or a whole host of other reasons, the government is able to present evidence to the judge which the claimant, defendant, media and public will never be privy to. And that's a result of these secret courts. This is something that the Supreme Court is powerless to stop because that act takes priority, the Justice and Security Act 2013, as it was passed by Parliament and parliamentary sovereignty is king in this country. And changes in legal aid, the, the, the support you can get uh, if you are a defendant, um, severely hampers uh, the ability of citizens to use the court system and thus limits the influence of the courts themselves to hold the government to account. Because um, if uh, people without the means um, cannot uh, get decent legal representation as they don't have the money themselves due to these legal aid cuts, um, then you will see fewer cases being brought um, by the government. I think Matthew probably uh, would have spoken about all of those things, and I have anyway. So after the break, uh, we'll wrap this up.
So what we've essentially argued on this show today um, is effectively uh, the Conservative argument, which says that judges in the UK are too powerful, um, and the liberal slash left-wing argument that suggests that judges aren't perhaps powerful enough. Perhaps the answer is somewhere in between. Judges are where they need to be. Um, They have uh, the power of judicial review to ensure uh, that the government doesn't overstep its mark um, and sticks within the law, Um, but it cannot create the law. The law is created by elected politicians. Um, If you look to the US, there are arguments there that a court which can effectively allow or disallow abortion across the country uh, is a court that is too uh, powerful uh, when it comes to weighing in on social or moral issues. Um, But when you look to this country, uh, you can see perhaps a better balance. Um, There's certainly a balance when you have a minority government, um, when it's more difficult to take decisions and courts are needed to step in. It it gives the appearance that courts are too powerful, but we see with the restoration of an 80-seat majority uh, that courts won't be able perhaps to decide so many big issues because those issues will be decided um, by the government um, through its domination uh, of parliament. Um, So perhaps the question should be, is the government too powerful? I think that's perhaps a better question because it's not judges that are too powerful in this country. Arguably, we have a too strong executive. That's just my tuppence worth. On um, a different matter, uh, you will see the icon for today's episode is no longer uh, my Lego White House. It is, in fact, uh, the creation of Nayan Patel, uh, who has submitted uh, a wonderful uh, entry to our competition on creating uh, a Lego landmark or political event. Um, he has recreated uh, the Tiananmen Square um, massacre, where the man stood in front of the tank there defying the Chinese government's crackdown. So well done, Nayan. Uh, you deserve your name or your image in lights uh, for today's show. Please join us next time. I can't believe we've now done 40 episodes for Series 2. We will continue to do this. Um, Until next time, take care. Bye-bye.